father dreaming of a better life for his child, whose dreams take him and his family into dangerous places, whose dreams make him a refugee in more than one way, whose dream is ultimately found beyond himself or even his life. This is the story that we just heard through spoken word poetry, and and we hear today in countless families crossing every border imaginable throughout this world, commonly called refugees, but each with a story unique to themselves. And this is also the story of Joseph. No, not the Joseph and the dream coat Joseph. Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus Joseph, that Joseph. Y'all remember him, right? And no, it's not Christmas time. And no, it's not an excuse to go home and put the Michael Buble Christmas album on full blast because you don't need my or anybody else's permission to let that songbird sing, all right? It's not the normal time of year for us to focus on Joseph, but it's hard to talk about dreamers this month without talking about the one who dreams more dreams than anyone else in Scripture. So let's talk about Joseph. Joseph's story and his dreams appear to us in the Gospel of Matthew early on. It's actually how Matthew tells the story of who Jesus is and and the narrative of that nativity that we celebrate at Christmas time. The Gospel of Matthew is written sometime after the year 72 CE, which is about 40 years after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and just after the temple in Jerusalem fell. That's important because when the temple falls, it creates this, this, this hole, this, this gap within the people of Israel because they, their identity is so closely tied to that place as a people. And so they're left wondering, who are we and where do we go from here? What dream do we follow now? And Matthew seeks to speak into that question. That's why Matthew's gospel appears first in the Bible. It's most closely connected to the Old Testament. There's references throughout it connecting it back to the Jewish tradition. That's the people that Matthew was most specifically writing to. And if you're unfamiliar with Joseph's story, I I want you to at least know what a lot of folks in this room may already know, and that is this, that Joseph's going to be visited by an angel um, and and going to be instructed to, to stay with Mary and to raise this child that is not his as his own. And then the angel is going to visit him again a few more times and lead him on a refugee's journey, quite literally, into Egypt, then back in again to Israel, except not back to his home, but to this other place called Galilee that um, is, this is Matthew's explanation for how Jesus ends up in Nazareth. And so knowing that, let's go back and look again at the story, because sometimes we feel like we know a story. Maybe you're the one sitting in the pew right now going, God, not another sermon about Joseph, right? Um, But every time I think I know a story, every time I think I've read it enough times, um, I go back again and I realize there's a reason we call this a living text. So with all of that in mind, let's, let's hear this story. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place, Matthew says. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
Let's pause there before we make our way into chapter 2. As I said before, Matthew is writing his gospel knowing full well that his audience is going to be deeply familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, specifically the stories of the Torah, most specifically the stories found in Genesis. These are formative stories that help to tell the Jewish people who they are and who God is and how God relates to them in the midst of their lives. And, and, and for the last two weeks, we've been studying the story of Joseph and the dream coat, that Joseph. And just for the record, my friends, I have been here now for almost three years. Next Sunday will be my three-year anniversary. I have preached about, that wasn't meant to elicit applause, that's pretty standard tenure, actually. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, made it to three. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have preached sermons about really, really tricky situations, some hot-button issues. We've talked about gun violence. We've talked about LGBTQ inclusion. We've talked about Black Lives Matter. Nothing has gotten me flamed as hard as throwing Donny Osmond under the bus two weeks ago when talking about Joseph. I didn't know where the anthills were at Arapahoe, but evidently it's Andrew Lloyd Webber. So I've learned. I've learned. I repent. I'm sorry. I've been accosted so many times. I thought folks might honestly leave the church over it. I, it, was, it was wild. They're like, could you please go back to gun violence? Stop talking about Donnie. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. So Matthew expects us to, to connect this story to the story of the other Joseph, right? When, if you're a Jewish person in those days, hearing the story about a Joseph who's dreaming, you're going to make some connections. And there are parallels, and there are also stark differences. So let's talk about some of that. Both Joseph it, it, the refugee and Joseph the dream coat dream dreams that will lead to the blessing of God's people. And yet, Joseph the refugee dreams a wider dream. Joseph the dream coat is a part of this Abrahamic lineage story. The first dreams come to Abraham, and God promises Abraham that his family will number the stars in the sky. And importantly, God says that Abraham's family will be the source of blessing for all people. Sometimes, as Christians, we can be really bad about trying to separate the Old and New Testament as these two distinct gods, almost, or these two very distinct stories. Like, Old Testament is really exclusive and mean and scary and New Testament is sunshine and rainbows. And my friends, we got to be careful because that tiptoes into like anti-Semitism. And the reality is the inclusive nature of God was there in the beginning. When God promises Abraham prosperity for his family, it's with the understanding that this blessing will enrich the lives of all of God's people, meaning all the people of the earth. And then God visits Jacob, Abraham's uh, pref preferred child. We talked about Jacob's dream, and Jacob's name becomes Israel, and that becomes the identity for the people called Israel. And again, God's saying, yes, I'm going to richly bless you, and all people will be blessed through you. And then Joseph dreams, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Joseph dreams that he's going to stand real tall and everyone's going to bow around him, and, and he acts kind of like a jerk, and, and then he gets sold into slavery, and then he's imprisoned and eventually becomes second in command of Egypt. And again, there's this idea that my family is being blessed because of God's provision. And so when God's angel visits Joseph here in Matthew 1, we might wonder if this is God's way of once again caring for the people of Israel, protecting them in a world that can feel hostile and harmful, because that's certainly the world they lived in. And yet when God says, I want you to name, or when the angel says, I want you to name this child Jesus, because he will be the source of salvation for his people, Matthew's kind of playing with that idea of what his people really means. Because while at first we might hear that and think, his people, well, that's me. 
That's me and my friends. That's, that's my community. Certainly, there would have been people in the Jewish audience thinking, oh, great, God's here for us again. And yet, Matthew's going to play with that tension through the rest of his gospel and challenge that notion of what it means to be us and who exactly them is anyways. Matthew is starting his story challenging the notion of a God who, who limits God's love, who, who limits God's grace, or who limits God's blessing, a God who divides. Instead, Matthew's showing us a God who quite literally from infancy crosses borders and boundaries and blurs the lines between us and them. And it's become cliche to say that we live in very polarized times. I know all of us experience that in different ways. And it's very easy for us to say, um, because many of us have been othered, quite frankly. We have been othered tremendously, not just in recent years, but like in recent weeks. And yet, I think it's also important for us to all acknowledge the ways in which we can other one another. Where we can be the one being pushed out at times, but at the same time, we can be the one saying, I'm so glad that God loves me and I get to hold baby Jesus and he is not for you because you are a jerk and he's over here, right? Sometimes I can be very guilty about that. I can be very guilty about looking at someone else whom I maybe deeply disagree with or simply don't understand and suddenly they become other. And suddenly I'm beginning to see us and them. And that's exactly the kind of mentality or, or life that God is challenging in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. God's dream is a wider dream than we even yet know. To cross borders and to blur the lines between us and them. And before you say amen, keep in mind, that means the borders and boundaries between the person that you're really glad to have a wall between at this moment. That's the very wall that God is challenging. It's not easy work. It could be lifelong work. But that's the kind of work that we are called to as the people of God. Now, again, there's parallels and there's differences between the two Josephs. Another parallel is that both dreams will bring about a special one-of-a-kind leader. Joseph of the dream coat knows that that leader is who? It's him. Right? I'm the one that the sun and the moon and the stars will bow down. Why are you guys selling me into slavery? That's weird. Don't you guys know how special I am? Right? Um, Joseph believes this to be him, and, and, and Joseph the refugee realizes it's not about him. We talked to two weeks ago about how Old Testament Joseph is kind of a jerk at first. The whole point of his story is to see how he enters into this journey of maturity and humility and here we notice that for Joseph the refugee in Matthew 1, literally nothing that the angel says to Joseph is in any way a promise for him or for his lineage to be tangibly blessed. I had to practice those two words like eight times earlier. I don't know why I wrote them together. Tangibly blessed. There's nothing in his dream that says you are going to have a great life because of this. Your people are going to have a great life because of this. Your family, your lineage, he's being given a son that is not his. So already this is like messing up his lineage plans. He's told nothing about the blessing of his family. He gets no sort of Abrahamic, the stars, the sky. It's just like, no, take care of these people. That's your calling. It's not about you, Joseph. It tells us in advance why Joseph might agree to this deal, which will likely cost him dearly, and yet also offers little in the way of definitive reward for him. It says in Matthew's gospel that he is a righteous man. Dikaios is the Greek word that's used there. It's a special word. The connotation is that it means he's perfect or, or near perfect. It's a word that Matthew uses very rarely. There are two people that Matthew calls dikaios or righteous in his gospel. It's Joseph and it's Jesus. Right? That's the kind of character that Matthew is telling us Joseph possesses. He is a dikaios, nearly perfect 
person. And so Matthew says, here's this guy who is objectively amazing. Matthew's a big fanboy, and yet he's going to spend the rest of his life, Joseph's going to spend the rest of his life in the, in the sidelines. This near-perfect person is going to get almost no more story to his name. Matthew is never going to mention him again, in fact, after chapter 2. That's the end of Joseph's story. He's done. Now, don't get me wrong. As we talk about humbling ourselves and lifting others up, it's, it's not wrong to have personal dreams or ambitions. In fact, I think that's a necessary part of life. I certainly have them for my life. I hope you have them for your life. Personal dreams and ambitions can be a very good thing. And yet, they are not the only thing. Because I also sense through Scripture that a part of deepening our faith is growing more and more comfortable not being the person, right? Not being the one whom the sun and stars bow down to. Not being the center of the wheel. Rather than being the Joseph with others bowing down, what if God calls us to be the Joseph who lifts others up? And it would be easy right now for me to lament as a millennial, along with my fellow millennials or even Gen Xers, the leaders, the people in the world today who are refusing to hand over keys and refusing to, to step aside and to lift others up, the, the leaders who sit on God, congressional hearings about TikTok, but they don't know how Wi-Fi works. Um, it's frustrating. You know, le leaders who just do not seem to see what everyone around them sees, that it is time, it is time to lift someone else up around you. I could very easily say, when is it going to be my time? When is it going to be? I know the Gen X is like the most forgotten generation. When are we going to remember Gen X exists, right? Um, and yet, after worship today, later this afternoon, I'm going to get in my car and drive down to San Antonio to join our student ministry on their mission trip. And I'm going to spend the week with about 13 of our students here um, sweating the bejesus out of my skin in the name of the Lord, um, doing the kind of work that I really love. I mean, I, I, this is probably 20 for me now. I, I love mission trips. Mission, engaging in missional work is a big reason why I, I stand here dressed like this today. Um, but I'm not going there just to swing a hammer on a roof in San Antonio. Lord knows that's not the only reason I'm going. I'm going really because I'm excited to spend time with our students and get to know them better. Because as easy as it is for me to look up and say, well, hey, when are you going to get out of the way? When are you going to make space for people like me? It's also, in this moment, humbling to feel the hand of God press down as I try to stand up around the sun and the moon and the stars and to say, Scott, what about them? Why can't a 15-year-old tell you the vision in which you and your people should go? Why can't an 18-year-old have a truth that you need to hear that you wouldn't hear if you don't bother asking them? Why can't a 14-year-old be the one to tell the church, this is what I believe God has for us, and why can't the church humble themselves enough to listen? So it's really easy for me to look up and wonder, well, what about me? But then it's also important for me to feel the hand of God press down just a smidge to say, Scott, what about them? How are you going to turn the keys over to them? This, not literally, they're not driving the Caps fan. Um, how, how are you going to hand the keys over to these young leaders? Because they're not the leaders of tomorrow. They, they could be the leaders of today if we were willing, right? Amen. And while both dreams, another parallel, both dreams lead the dreamers into danger. Joseph the dream coat, as I said, ends up enslaved and imprisoned, almost killed. 
And and Joseph, the refugee in chapter 2, will be led on this journey of incredible danger and, and disorientation. They both are led into danger, and yet the way they are led there is important to notice the difference. The Joseph the dream coat encounters danger because of his hubris, quite frankly. But Joseph the refugee encounters his danger because of his faithfulness. And isn't that the way that life can go? Sometimes we encounter difficulty or, or just stuff happens. And sometimes it's just because we live in a broken world. Sometimes it's because our hubris leads us there. And we find ourselves in a pit and wonder, how'd that happen? And everyone in our life is saying, we'd love to tell you how. Um, and then sometimes we find ourselves in difficulty because, quite frankly, we're being faithful. And that's sometimes where God will lead us. That's the kind of story that Joseph has. Three times dreams come to Joseph in chapter 2. The first is after the wise men visit and and they're visited in a dream. And then Joseph is visited in a dream and, and the angel says, Get up! Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. Herod knows that there's some newborn king that's threatening his throne and he's going to come after him. So then Joseph gets up and goes, they go into Egypt for some amount of time. And then after Herod dies, the angel appears again and says, get up, the angel said, and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Those who were trying to kill the child are dead. But then it turns out the new boss is kind of same as the old boss. And so one last time the angel appears to Joseph and warns him. And it says, having been warned in a dream, Joseph and his family went to the area of Galilee. A space that was not home, according to Matthew, for Joseph. But it would become home because it was not where the rulers in those lands were living. The story of Joseph the refugee, my friends, is the story of a father faithfully following God. And I think it's important to stop for a moment and consider the story of a refugee, right? Because refugees can come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes they come in the way that we think of refugees and we hear that word. People crossing borders quite literally, trekking by foot, by boat, by plane, however, trying to make their way in the world to a place that could be safer, more prosperous, just a place where they could raise their child in something that feels like home. Sometimes refugees go willingly. Sometimes they are pushed unwillingly. In my previous church that I served, we had refugees uh, who had come from war-torn countries in the west coast of Africa. We had refugees who had come seeking political asylum out of Zimbabwe and Robert Mugabe's government. Not every refugee story is the same. We also have refugees in the church. I've encountered church refugees all my life of ministry. I know that's an identity that many of us share here in this space and online. Folks that either left willingly or unwillingly were forced out of church communities that had felt like home for a long time. And and like refugees crossing other kinds of boundaries, becoming a church refugee can be disorienting as well, can be painful, can be hard. There's refugees that we encounter in our personal lives, people who are stepping out of situations and scenarios, again, either willingly or unwillingly, but they're stepping into something unknown. They're feeling disoriented, feeling alone, looking for someone to extend a helping hand. I don't know who that might be for you, but I guarantee you someone like that will cross your life in the not-too-distant future. I wonder what our experience with that might be. Maybe you feel like a refugee in this very moment, the person who is disoriented, in unknown territory, doing the best they can with what little they have. When encountering refugees, what is our natural posture 
I wonder? Do we see the same faithfulness in their lives as the gospel celebrates in Joseph's life? Because quite frankly, my friends, I can be ashamed as to how Christians talk about and treat refugees in this day and age. There can be a suspicion or a paranoia when I wondered, is it that hard to look into the heart of a refugee and just simply see someone desiring a place where they can be and feel and provide love? Is that really so hard? Matthew starts his story with it. What is our posture? Because that's ultimately what Joseph's character becomes driven by, this ability to sense God saying, go. And so he goes. He's faithful. He's not fearful, though he certainly can feel afraid. He's not doing this out of any sense of personal gain. He's going, doing this out of faithfulness. I think that modern Christians sometimes struggle with this concept of, of the word obey or obedience, especially in Christian circles, and for very good reasons, because those terms can get weaponized and have been weaponized to really harmful ends in the life of faith, to be obedient to the will of God, and frequently what the will of God is whatever the pastor is saying or whatever the person that's supposed to be in charge of that house or that organization is saying. But maybe instead of obedience, we could, we could reframe that word and talk about faithfulness. Instead, Because I think obedience connotes someone who is unquestioning, uh, someone who's uh, uh, blindly following. And that's not really who Joseph is. The angel appears and says, be not afraid. Joseph is scared out of his mind when the angel first encounters him. It's in the midst of that fear, however, in the midst of his doubts or his questions like any other human being would have, his faithfulness wins out and speaks to a willingness to step forward even when some of his questions are yet unanswered. That's what being a dreamer is about, ultimately. Stepping into the risk and the unknown and the disorientation and all of the above with confidence. Not a foolhardy, shallow confidence that everything's just going to work out, but a faithful, deep-seated confidence that trusts that it will not be in vain. Even if we don't get to see the end result, we have no evidence that Joseph saw his son in public ministry. None of the Gospels talk about him after Jesus is like 12. So it's pretty easy for us to assume that at some point between 12 years old and 30 uh, of Jesus' life, his father passes away. And so we don't get to see Joseph in the crowds of Jesus' public ministry. He, doesn't, he dreams of his son bringing salvation to all of God's people, but he doesn't get to see just what that would look like. He, he dreams of lifting up his family in word and action, but he would never see his own son lifted onto a cross or ascend into heaven. Because ultimately, the best dreams that we can dream are the ones that can live on far beyond us. That's the kind of dreams that Joseph has in his heart. The kind of dreams that seek to give a better life to the next generation, and the ones after that, and the ones after that. The kind of dreams that demand dignity for the ones who cannot, be, be, who cannot speak or the ones who cannot be heard. The kind of dreams that build up the people of God and welcome in the kingdom of God. The kind of dreams that need faithful dreamers like you and like me. So dream on, my friends. Dream the dreams for yourself and for your family and for your loved one. Dream those dreams and do not feel ashamed. Dream those dreams that make you feel like you are standing on top of the world and even the sun and the moon are bowing down. And my friends, also dream those dreams that allow us to step out of the center and to see all that God has created 
and to wonder how our lives could be in service to something bigger and wider and better than we could even imagine. The kind of dream that's not built on my shoulders or your shoulders, but is built on the future and fruition of us. <laughs> dream those dreams, my friends. Dream on. Amen.